All right, finishing up 2 Thessalonians. You may write, and I find it helpful sometimes in my study Bible to write uh, the background to epistles or what the epistle's all about. They're on just the title page or above the uh, where the title is. Background to 2 Thessalonians is 1 Thessalonians. Background to 1 Thessalonians is actually Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, where Paul goes into Thessalonica. He spends about three Sabbaths there, reasoning with the, the brethren, reasoning with uh, the Jews. And there's a church in its infant state. Paul is there for less than a month. And you remember that we talked about for the last two weeks that he had to leave out of there based upon the persecution of the Jews. He left out of there relatively quickly and went to Berea. But you also remember that in his concern for what was going on there at Thessalonica, he sent Timothy back to bring a report about how it was that that infant church was doing. And Timothy came, comes back and meets him at Athens and says, Paul, guess what? You won't believe it. They're doing great. Uh, they're still holding fast to what they ought to. They're still growing, even in the face of persecution. In fact, Paul would compliment them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 to say, or chapter 1, that your faith has gone out, even into the whole world. He said that's a, that's a, a reason to glorify God, and that's a reason to boast in, uh, in this church. And so it is that uh, he writes to them, and he has some things concerning um, keeping themselves morally pure, 1 Thessalonians 4. And then especially, you note that at the end of 1 Thessalonians 4, that he begins to talk about um, the resurrection of Jesus, or excuse me, the resurrection of the dead. Apparently there were some that were already propagating some things as far as the end times go, or what's going to happen, whatever it is that Christ comes back, or those who have already died, if they missed the resurrection. And Paul correcting that, and then talking about the day of the Lord, and how the day of the Lord is going to come, uh, as a thief in the night, in 1 Thessalonians 5, and how nobody knows uh, how that is, but we have a responsibility to conduct ourselves in um, as children of the day, he would say, um, as children of light. And so realizing that and that this infant church is doing well, sometime between 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, people then began to imagine certain doctrines regarding the second coming of Christ, that it was imminent. That is, it's coming pretty quickly. And, well, doesn't that speak a lot to our world? You're going to find people that really want to fabricate things about Christianity and about Jesus and about the Lord. Generally, what's going to happen is they're going to take some cryptic passages or they're going to take some things that are maybe a little more difficult to understand and they want to try and fabricate something based upon, uh, well, the end times, the eschatology, about how things are going to happen and the order and the way that things are going to uh, transpire whenever it is that Jesus Christ comes back. Well, for whatever reason, there were false teachers here that began to teach the Thessalonians that the second coming of Christ is right around the corner. It's imminent. And Paul writes this epistle, at least in some part, number one, to encourage them in their faith to say, I know that you're having a difficult time, chapter one. I know that there are some that are persecuting you and that are putting you really to the fire. He says, you keep going. Christ, when he comes back, he is going to take vengeance upon those who are, um, who are persecuting you. He's turning the persecuted or into uh, the comforted, and he's turning the persecutor into the persecuted is what's going to happen whenever uh, the Lord comes back to take care of that. But when he gets to chapter 2, as we talked about last week, he says, listen, there are certain things that have to take place before Jesus comes back. You remember what those things are? This is the part where you talk. 
Okay, what are those things that have to take place before Jesus Christ comes back? There's two of them specifically that he mentions. All right, it's not the Antichrist. The Antichrist is a different book, and it's a different uh, title given to a different person or a different uh, doctrine, a um, particular group of people. It's the man of sin, okay? There has to be a man of sin that's revealed. He may hold to Antichrist philosophies, but he's not a capital A Antichrist. We're not looking for a singular individual uh, as far as this goes, okay? So when you've got uh, the man of sin being revealed, that's number one, but what's number two? Rebellion or a um, falling away, an apostasy. Both of these things are listed there in chapter 2 and verse 3. He says, let no one deceive you by any means for that day. Which day are we talking about? The second coming of Jesus Christ. That's chapter 2 and verse 1. For the Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, verse 3 says, let no one deceive you by any means for that day will not come unless, note, number 1, the falling away comes first. And number two, the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition or destruction, okay? You've got the revealing of this man of lawlessness. You've got this great falling away, this apostasy that's going to happen. And Paul talks about these things in terms of the fact that it seems like they are, these things are relatively near as far as the uh, history of the Thessalonian church goes. Do you remember what the big takeaway was from chapter two? We used a lot of possibilities for this revealing of the man of sin and possibilities for who he is. But what's the takeaway for Christians, regardless of who he is? We have responsibilities, and if we can look at chapters like chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians and see what God wants us to do, those things are not in dispute. Those things are easy to understand, even when we're looking at these kind of uh, uh, messages that are a little bit difficult to decipher. Some of the things that God commands here in this chapter, well, all of the things that God commands here in this chapter for Christians to behave and ways that they need to respond are not at all difficult to understand. We would have uh, ease uh, explaining these things to our children. When you have chapter 2 and verse 15, which I have proposed as maybe a... Um, Thesis statement for the book of Thessalonians. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the divine traditions, the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or by our epistle. How are these false teachers coming along to Thessalonica and disturbing these people? What means were they using? Go back to chapter 2 and verse 2. All right. He says, uh, don't be shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word. Here's somebody saying something or by letter, whether it be from us or as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Might be somebody's false uh, circulating false reports. Nobody does that today, do they? You get emails that come across your uh, your email page that say, um, You've got to share, otherwise it is that our country is going to descend into apostasy or whatever the, you know, um, Nigerian prince wants to send you $50,000, you know, in small unmarked bill. I don't know. There's people that are sending false reports even today. And it was common here in Paul's day, and maybe they got a letter that said, by the way, you've either missed the second coming of Christ or it's just right around the corner. So be ready for it. And Paul says, don't be soon shaken. Don't be disturbed by this. You do your responsibility, verse 15, of holding fast the traditions that you've received, whether by word or by our epistle. 
chapter 3. Let's go ahead and read this and we'll come back and we'll make some uh, observations as far as the kind of practical, uh, well, the practical lessons that he says. Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of God may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you that that uh, both that you do and you will do the things that we command you. Now may the Lord direct your, your hearts into the love of Christ and into the patience, or love of God and into the patience of Christ. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. We, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil that night and day, that, you might, that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we don't have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you ought to follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk uh, among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And then if anyone doesn't obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with that person, uh, with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. This salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. What's the major theme that you see develop here throughout chapter 3? All right, Morris uh, uh, puts his finger on the pulse here, that there's people that thought the return of Christ was imminent. It's right around the corner, and so what they started doing was quitting their jobs and becoming busybodies. I don't have to work because, well, if Christ is coming back, there's no need to go back to that secular job, is there? There's no need to continue doing that, so I'm just going to, well, not work. Well, when you're not working, what are you going to start doing? I'm bored. <laughs> the cry of many a teenager throughout the summer months. I'm bored. And what happens? Well, what happens is you start getting into trouble. Now here's this person that's sitting at their house because they don't have a job to go to because they quit that job. And now it is they grow restless and they begin to get up and say, I'm going to go bug Joe down the street and see what's going on with him. And as you're bugging Joe, Joe, you know, I haven't eaten today. I'm out of money because, you know, the second coming of Christ is imminent. And it may be another star in your crown in order for you to provide for me some food so that I can go on eating. Well, Joe, if he's a Christian, is going to try and, you know, take care of that because he feels like that's his Christian obligation. And as uh, he does that, well, there comes a point where Joe is probably going to get a little tired of this guy, this brother, and say, could you go down the street and bug somebody else? Okay. He goes down the street, and he begins to visit with old Jim. And as he talks to Jim, hey, Jim, do you hear about what old Joe's doing down there? By the way, could I have some food? 
And next thing you know, he's running all over town. And maybe there's even a group of people like this, if this is what he's dealing with here in 2 Thessalonians 3, that have just simply, well, they're rotating and they're becoming busybodies and gossips and they're spreading false reports and they're mooching off of other people. And so in dealing with those things, Paul says, this is how I'm going to classify these people. Okay, here's who they are. What word does he return to again and again through chapter three to talk about them? The verse six. Excuse me. Disorderly. Disorderly. Circle that term there in verse six. Word disorderly is a military term. Okay, it simply means out of ranks, deviating from the prescribed order or rule. Okay, uh, those of you who are military men, military women, when you had somebody there through basic or even on into your service that deviated from the ordered rule, how were those people dealt with? Was somebody uh, pretty easy on them? Were they, was the drill instructor, did he uh, take that lightly? Was that something that uh, he would, oh, that's okay, that's just old Joe or that's just old Jim or whoever it is. Nothing about Joe or Jim, but you understand that just by way of example. How was it dealt with? Harshly. Why, Lonnie? He wasn't going to put up with it. Why not? It was out of line with rules. If it was, just supposing, maybe you did have a more lenient drill instructor that began to tolerate certain things like that, what would that ultimately lead to? It would lead to chaos. It would lead to others doing it. You relax in one area. You relax in one set of rules, and what's going to happen? Well, it's not too long until uh, somebody's, you know, who's making their bunk to where they can bounce a quarter off of it says, well, he's getting away with that. So I'm going to see if I can get away with that. And if he gets away with that, next thing you know, it's somebody else and somebody else and somebody else until it is. Why do we have the rule in the first place? Why do we have that uh, down in the books in the first place? Oh, it doesn't take long for kids to, you know, in school, figure out a teacher. I remember when I was in college, before we would register for classes, we would often talk about, um, teachers with other people that have taken those classes and we'd say, okay, who's the easiest teacher as far as this goes? And well, you know, this person's pretty easy as far as attendance goes, but when you get down to tests, they're a little bit more strict. But if you study the study guide, you'll be just fine. And they know that because they know those teachers and they know the way that things are going to be. And so they can get away with whatever it is that they want to. That's really what that question is all about in trying to subvert or get around as many of the rules as possible so that you can just get the grade and get out of the class. Disorderly. It doesn't take people long to figure out where people are soft and where the loopholes are and where the things are that uh, the blind spots that somebody might get in. And Paul deals with this pretty harshly in talking about this. Verse 6, we command you, brethren. Okay, here's the responsibility, Thessalonians. You have somebody living among you that's not walking like they ought to. They're walking out of ranks. They're walking disorderly. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Note that phrase. What's he doing? 
in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's appealing to the authority. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, you withdraw from every brother that walks disorderly. Listen, this is not according to what you think. This is not according to how it is that you think this person ought to be, ought to be dealt with. Rather, this is the authority by which you do this action. Hold your finger here just for a moment. Flip back to First Thessalonians, or excuse me, First Corinthians. First Corinthians. Look at chapter five. You get to chapter 5, you deal with a matter of immorality here in uh, Corinth that's not even named among the Gentiles. Anybody remember what it was? Guy has his father's wife, either his stepmom or his mom. Um, and looking at this and Paul talking about the fact that the church is puffed up when they should have mourned, what's his solution? Look at verse 4. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ... What's he doing? He's appealing to the authority. When you're gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that uh, his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Twice in this instance, he talks about the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ in doing what? withdrawing from this person and exercising discipline on this person. Flip back to Matthew chapter 18 just for a moment. Matthew chapter 18, Matthew chapter 19 uh, are difficult, difficult passages to look at. Um, because there's not a lot of people that want to really practice them the way that it is that uh, Jesus says. Look at... Um, Look at verse, uh, chapter 18, verse, verse 15. Jesus says, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, take with one, uh, one or two more witnesses by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses to hear even the church, let him be treated to you like a heathen and tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say that uh, to you that if there's two or three of you that agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it may be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together, don't miss this, in my name, there I am in the midst of them. In the context which Jesus spoke this about dealing with a brother that sinned against you, and how you go to him and how you tell him it's fall between you and him alone. And then realizing that there may become a point where this person's not going to listen to you. Or if there comes a point where they're not going to hear the church throughout this process. He says, you treat that person like a heathen and tax collector. But as he talks about this in verse 20, where two or three are gathered together in my name. Listen, we hear that sometimes in the context of worship, don't we? We're glad that we're here today, this morning, on this occasion, because, you know, Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. That that's, may be true, but that's not the context. 
The context is when you're gathered together by the Spirit and the authority of Jesus Christ to do what needs to be done for the salvation of this brother's soul, that's where Jesus is. And so 1 Corinthians 5, where he says, by the power or by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, church, this is the responsibility that you have towards this man who's had his father's wife. You withdraw from that man by the power and by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, with his authority, with his approval. When you get back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we command you, chapter 3 and verse 6, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition that he received from us. It's not a matter of kicking this person out because we don't like him. It's not a matter of us at the church saying, all right, I vote Lonnie out. Who votes with me? It's a matter of looking at what Jesus said by his authority, realizing this person is not walking according to the ranks that he ought to, and saying, listen, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we've got to do something about this person. Why? Because, it, go ahead. Debbie says, because if you overlook what this person's doing, you have to overlook what the next person's doing. And before too long, just like the military, the standard doesn't matter. It just becomes a group of, well, a social club, really, because brothers and sisters were called unto holiness. That is, we're separate from sin and we're devoted to God's purpose for his glory. And if I fail to be separate from sin or if we fail to tolerate somebody that's living in open rebellion, again, please don't misunderstand. This is not a person who's struggling with a particular sin. If it's struggling, it means you're doing what you ought to. We fight against sin. We try and cast off a sin that so easily besets us, Hebrews chapter 12. We want to lay aside those weights. And those of us that are struggling with sin and dealing with those things that well, you, you have trouble controlling your tongue. And I realize that some of the things that come out of my mouth may not be edifying. It may be hurtful, and I may speak lies occasionally, but I don't want those things to happen. Here's a person who continuously dwells in a rebellious state against God. Here's a person who refuses to work no matter who it is that talks to him. Come on, brother, go back to work. You have a job to perform. No, no, I don't need to do that. Really? You're going to continue mooching off other people. You're going to continue gossiping, which we know absolutely is something that we don't need to do. You're going to continue doing those things to your own peril. And imagine that person coming in week after week into the assembly. If he was mooching off of you, if he was spreading lies and gossip about you, how would you feel about that? Would you look forward to the Sunday assembly? It's not a trick question. <laughs> this is no, this is yet. Would you look forward to seeing that brother in the, in the assembly? The answer is no. Do you suppose that would hinder your worship? I know here's a brother that refuses to make his life right. I've gone to him, me and Joe have gone to him, and we've tried to explain to him exactly what he's doing wrong, and he continues to persist in this lifestyle. What's he done? He's compromised the purity of the church. There's sin in the camp, to borrow from the book of Joshua. So what's the responsibility? 
you have somebody that continually chooses to walk a disorderly lifestyle, Paul says, with the authority of Jesus Christ, you need to take a step back from that person. You need to withdraw from them. Withdraw from those people who walk disorderly, verse 6. And not according to the tradition which he received to us. What's the responsibility of the church using the language of Thessalonians? Look at 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 15. It says, brethren, stand fast and what? Hold the traditions. Here's somebody that's walking disorderly and not according to the tradition. Uh, chapter 3 and verse 6, which he received from us. For you yourselves also know, 3 verse 7, you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. Same word. Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but we worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Why did Paul do that? He said in First Thessalonians, or excuse me, First Corinthians chapter 9 that he had a right as a gospel preacher to be paid, pay the preacher, 1 Corinthians 9, as we talk about with our kids. Um, Galatians 6, you know, the ox that treads out the grain has a right to eat. Meaning, if uh, he has, somebody's sharing spiritual things with you, he can, uh, he can receive payment for those things. Why did Paul not? All right, Morris hits nail on the head. There were people that were making false accusations against Paul and that were accusing him of just wanting to get rich off the gospel. And Paul, in wanting to not be a burden to anybody, in wanting to not give other people an opportunity to say, well, he's just, he's just mooching himself. Paul said, I was there in Thessalonica. I made sure that I didn't take advantage of anything that I was due because I didn't want to give an occasion like this. I didn't want for anybody to look at this and say, verse 9, because we don't have, or because... We do not have authority to make ourselves an example of how you ought to follow us. Paul says, I want to continue preaching the gospel without people looking at me and saying, well, false things, or beginning to look at him and his lifestyle and say, well, look, his lifestyle is besetting with somebody that's just uh, wasting time or just um, waiting around for his next meal or um, whatever, the, whatever the accusations were. Just for example, flip back in your Bible here to the first Thessalonians chapter two. He uses the same phrase there in verses nine and ten. For you remember, brethren, our labor and our toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, but we preach the gospel to you. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. When Paul talked about his responsibility as a gospel preacher and his desire for people not to have anything that's going to stick, can you imagine somebody coming along to one of the Thessalonians and saying, you know, Paul's just trying to get rich off the church here. Immediately in your mind, you would remember how Paul used perhaps his tent-making ability and his uh, preaching ability and how he used his own ingenuity to 
provide for himself his meals and to take care of his, uh, his own living so that when he was with them, there was nothing that anybody could look at and say, well, Paul's trying to get rich off us. Blameless. Nothing's going to stick. When you talk about elders and elders' responsibilities, First uh, Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1, you want a person who is blameless to where you can throw an accusation his way and say, no, that's not going to stick. No, that's not going to be that way. But in contrast, here's these people that have quit their jobs that are now running around as busybodies and saying, is this the character and example of somebody that follows Jesus? The answer is no. We go to them. We try and correct them. We try and help them through the difficulty and say, brother, you need to repent. You need to change your mind. You need to change your heart. This person continues to say, no, I'm just going to continue doing what I want to. What's the answer? In the name of Jesus Christ, by his authority, you withdraw from that person. Withdraw from that person. No, he's... In this section, he uses a couple of things to describe disorderly conduct. Number one, uh, verse six. They're not walking at the very end of the verse, not according to the tradition which he received from us. Here's somebody that doesn't accept Scripture. Okay? They're not accepting Scripture. Look at verse eight. Here's a person that's not afraid to be a burden to somebody else. In fact, it seems like they want everybody to carry them. They want somebody else to carry them. Number three, look at verse 11. We hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly, this third time in the context, manner, not working at all. Here's a person that's not going to lift his hand to do the hard work of God. And the last thing at the end of verse 11, but are busybodies. Here's a person that's making his business other people's business. You know the old song, um, be careful little eyes what you see, because there's a father up above looking down in love. I had a friend of mine that added an extra verse, and he'd say, be careful little nose where your foot. Be careful little nose where your foot. Because that's just as relevant as be careful little eyes what you see, your feet where you go, or hands what you do, as be careful little nose what where you put he also did be careful little belly where you're seen you know and talking about modesty with his daughters and uh, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that but you understand that there's there's certain things that we ought not to put our noses in here's people that are not receiving scripture here's people that are being a burden to other people here's people that are not working at all here's people that are gossips and uh, busybodies in other people's business and look at verse 14 if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, bookends, verse 6, not according to the traditions, not walking according to traditions, verse 14, not obeying the word, and all of those things in the middle are things that describe in this epistle disorderly conduct. Now, what's the attitude that the church adopts towards the disorderly? Verse 14. If anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, number one, mark or note that person. Note them. Put up a flag in your mind. 
in your heart about this person. Here is a person that's not willing to conform to the standard, to the rule. Here's a person who continually walks disorderly according to the things that God has said in his word. And when I talk to that person, that flag needs to go up. That alarm needs to go off. Note that person. Number two, what else does he say in the verse 14? Note that person and do not keep company with that person. What does that mean? Don't associate. Don't fellowship with them. Um, what does it look like? What does it look like? Jim and I used to go for coffee and donuts every Tuesday morning. And because the church, by the authority of Jesus Christ, has said, Joe's not doing what he ought to. Joe's not being the man that he ought to. We're going to note that person. And so it is that the first Tuesday that I don't show up for coffee and donuts with Joe, it ought to be that Joe ought to poke his head up and say, what in the world? Where's Andy? And if he calls me on the phone, Andy, it's coffee. Coffee today, you're buying. <laughs> in the context. Andy, coffee, uh, you're buying today. You're, you're making the donuts. and uh, Are you bringing the donuts? Joe, listen. Your, your lifestyle is such that I can't be part of the way that you're living. I can't associate with myself and your current conduct, Joe. I can't behave in that way, and I can't sit with you in good conscience because you're denying what Jesus wants you to do. Joe, I love you, but unless you make your life right, there's, there's really nothing I can do, and I won't be coming back to coffee and donuts. How's that harsh? Maybe in Joe's mind. And maybe it might be that he's looking at me and going, oh, that's just Andy. Oh, he's just so stubborn. He's just a big old Bible thumper. And, you know, there's, there's Christians that are less, well, they're less strict than he is. Maybe Joe comes back into the assembly. How do we treat him? How do we treat him? Used to be that we would have Joe come and sit with our family. And say, Joe, come on over. I know that you're, you're a single man. I know that you don't have anybody there in your house. Come on over and sit with us. Come on over and, uh, and enjoy our potluck after, after services. Or come on over and uh, uh, come over to our house. and we're, uh, we'll, we'll feed you today. As it is, I see Joe coming into the assembly. That red flag is going up in my mind. That alarm is going off. And we go over to old Joe, and it ought to be, Graber Road, 225, 250, however many are present on Sunday morning, that there's 250 Christians that go over to old Joe that morning and say, Joe, love you. Are you here to make your life right? Are you here to begin to walk in step with what Christ has said? If he says no, we go and we find somewhere else to sit. If he says yes, that may be an occasion where it is that we say, Let's get that corrected right now before we go to worship. Whatever that may be, an elder standing up and reading a public statement of repentance, confession, whether that be an elder standing up and saying, old Joe's ready to make his life right. The purpose is 
for old Joe to understand that we love him, we absolutely love him, but note that we want him to be ashamed of his lifestyle. Why? Because he's disorderly. Because he's not walking the way that he ought to as a Christian. But also because an attitude and a lifestyle of disorderly conduct, well, is that something that Jesus accepts? Is that what Jesus wants of his disciples? Where is an attitude like that and where is a lifestyle like that going to ultimately lead that person? Not a trick question. It's going to lead him to a devil's hell. And really in this situation, the most loving thing that the church can do is take a step back, so to speak, from old Joe, so that it is old Joe can be ashamed and realize the blessing of the fellowship in the body of Christ and realize that the life that's lived to the glory of God in the body of Christ is something that's worth conforming your life to the standard and worth following after Jesus in discipleship. But if he continues to refuse, what the church has actually done is a picture of what God is ultimately going to do on the day of judgment if he doesn't make his life right. That was the goal back in 1 Corinthians 5. Deliver such a one to Satan in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for what? For the destruction of the flesh. For what purpose? That this person could be ashamed and he can repent. And then he can change his life and say, you know what? It's absolutely wrong for me to be in the sexual relationship. And I'm going to repent of that. I'm going to cut that off. And I'm going to come back to where I know it is that, well, the prodigal said, or thought, how wonderful it is in my father's house. How great it is. That's the ultimate purpose of discipline, if you like to call it, uh, withdrawing from somebody. It's not just to excommunicate somebody and say, whew. I'm just washing my hands of that person. I'm done with them. It's done with the utmost love and care and concern so that that person can understand how much the church loves them, how much the Lord loves them, but that there's a standard that ought to be followed. There's something that ought to be uh, held on to. And so it is, he says, note them, mark them, verse 14. Do not keep company with them, verse 14. Verse 15, yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. It's not a matter of treating this person contemptuously. It's not a matter of letting all your malice and hatred go towards this person. Hopefully you don't have those things to begin with, but you understand. It's not a matter of treating this person spitefully and scorning them and, and talking loudly about how badly they've messed up and all those different things. It's about treating this person and saying, I want to win my brother back. I want my brother to make his life right. I want this person to be right with the Lord. And he says, you find somebody like that, somebody, verse 6, who's not going to receive Scripture. Somebody who's going to be a burden, who's borne by others. Somebody who's not working at all. Somebody who's a busybody. Somebody who's not obeying the word in this epistle. He says, you have responsibility towards that person. How do we help a brother or sister in a life of disorder? <laughs> Note a couple of things from Thessalonians. We said chapter 2 and verse 15, one of the best things we can do and one of the things that we come back to again and again and again is to hold fast 
to what we've received. Brothers and sisters, what we've got to do more than anything else is hold up right living, right teaching. We've got to hold up Scripture. We've got to hold up the New Testament and realize this is our standard for life. This is what it is that we have agreed, excuse me, we have committed to. When we became Christians, we said, I'm no longer going to live for myself. I'm going to live for Jesus Christ who purchased me with his own blood. He's my king. Oh, I dearly love him. And I'm going to follow his word no matter what. If I begin to compromise with that, if I begin to treat certain parts like it's just not important or it's relevant for me in my life or it's just not applicable to me and maybe applicable to everybody else, then what I've done is I've compromised Scripture. Paul says the goal is, is that we hold fast the divine traditions which you were taught, whether by word or by our epistles, Thessalonians. This is your responsibility. Number one, we have a responsibility to hold to that. Look at verse 4 of chapter 3. Did I say chapter 4, verse 3? I mean chapter 3, verse 4. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things that we command you. It's not just about what we know. It's also about what we learn. There's never a point in our lives, our Christian lives, where we can just stop growing and where we can feel like we've got enough understanding. If we get to that point, well, we need to reassess where we are. Old song goes, you can't get to heaven on roller skates. Might skate right past those pearly gates. I'm thinking about VBS songs apparently this morning. Um, Look at what he says there in the first three verses. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of God may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. Am I a person that's about the glory of God's word? And that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men I find the end of verse 2 kind of curious. For not all have faith. He could very well be talking about non-Christians. He could be talking about people who are there in the culture of Thessalonica that are wicked and uh, unreasonable men. But he also could very well still be talking about those verse 6 people. If you find somebody that's not going to adhere to sound doctrine, they're not going to live a life Could you call that person or their lifestyle wicked if it's against Christ? If you've talked to this person and said, listen, let's talk about the chapter 2 things that need to take place if we're back in the culture of Thessalonica. And we're looking at the, the apostasy hasn't happened, the man of sin hasn't been revealed yet. You have a responsibility to go back to work. Reasonable. By Scripture. Here's the reasons why you need to go back to work. And you have this person that's going to say, yeah, I'm not going to do that. I'd much rather continue mooching off of the people and being a busybody in other people's business. You have this person that's unreasonable and that's wicked. And he's not operating by faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by word of God. Somebody doesn't want to hear the word of God. Can they really have faith? The answer is no. He says, but we have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you will do, that you do, and you will do the things that we command you, that you're not wicked, that you are reasonable. When you talk to somebody and you find they're in a lifestyle of rebellion against God, they're living a wicked lifestyle, 
and they don't have a mind to study and realize what they're doing is wrong. Both of those things describe a disorderly lifestyle. Note this, folks. You can have somebody struggling with sin, and you can have somebody that just learns, for example, gossip is a sin, or somebody that learns that what they're saying around the lunchroom table is not edifying and not going to be godly speech. They look into the Word of God and they realize that, and then all of a sudden they think, wait a minute, what I'm doing is wicked. But if you're trying to talk to that person and convince them of what they're doing is wrong, it ought to be, if the person's spirit is right, if their attitude is right, that they say, I see that clearly, and I need to change. I need to repent. Because if they don't, they could be characterized as disorderly. And that's the truth of the matter. I hope this lesson has been helpful for you. Note once again that there's two prayers that he utters there in chapter 3 and verse 5, chapter 3 and verse 16. Um, and both of them are essential in helping these people to continue living godly lives. And we are out of time. Thank you all so much for your attention. I hope this has been